Can you hear me? Testing. Good. Welcome. Um, those of you who made it out, you guys are troopers. Um, I was not sure if I was going to make it initially when I pulled out of the parking lot in Ardmore. It was, it was hard to even see out my window as I started driving. Then I got on the freeway and everything cleared up. So I'm glad to be here and I'm glad that you chose to make it out. Um, despite the weather. So we're going to start with a word of prayer and then we're going to get right back into the word of God tonight as we continue. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you so much for the privilege that we have to study your word this evening. And I want to ask that you would guide us, that you would give us understanding, and that you would pour out the Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, hide me behind your cross, I pray. And may, be, may Christ be lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we continue this journey through God's Word, I'm going to continue to reemphasize the point of studying the Bible for yourself. Uh, don't just take my word for it, but examine the Scriptures to see if these things be so. As we begin, when we closed our message Sunday night, we looked at how Christ literally became the curse of sin for humanity. How in his experience of going to the cross, he actually took upon the shame and the pain of sin that came upon humanity at the garden. We saw that Christ died naked, experienced more pain than a woman in childbirth. He took upon himself a crown of thorns as man was forced to till the ground through thorns and thistles. And we saw that while sin originated at a tree, the fruit that comes from Calvary's tree is salvation to all who believe. And as we continue our journey, we're going from the garden to the cross night. We're going to look at a couple Old Testament examples. We're actually going to look at a prophecy from the book of Daniel tonight as we begin to study. But we're going to trace some of the history from the garden to the cross and what Christ has done and where we find Christ in the Old Testament. And we don't even have time enough to look at where Christ shows up throughout the Old Testament. But tonight, we're going to start in Numbers chapter 21. If you have your Bibles, Numbers chapter 21. The children of Israel have been wandering for 40 long years because they failed to enter the Promised Land. In fact, they have a problem that by now has developed into murmuring and complaining incessantly. And so, the children of Israel, they're finally making their way back to the Promised Land, when we pick up in the story of Numbers chapter 21. And it turns out that in all their 40 years of wandering, not a whole lot has changed. Numbers chapter 21 and verse 1, When the king of Arad, the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard tell that Israel came by the way, of the spies, when he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners, Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord hearkened to their voice and delivered the Canaanites into the hand of Israel, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities, and he called the name of that place Homar. So they've just experienced this amazing victory, and you think there's no way that they would complain, there's no way that they would be upset. But then something goes wrong. They can't journey through Edom. They're forced to take a longer path. And verse 5 says, The people spoke against God 
and against Moses. And they said, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. Our soul loveth this light bread. Now it's interesting that they're still asking about Egypt at this point because 40 years have passed. Most of the people that are complaining now would have had a faint recollection of Egypt, or at least a good portion of them. Because everyone that was older, 20 and older, had died. The Bible says that God sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people among the people of Israel, and many of them died. Verse 7, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray unto the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed unto the people. So the fiery serpents have broken out in the camp. And you can imagine the chaos that it's causing. And the people come running. They realize they've messed up. And they ask Moses, pray that God would just simply take the serpents away. And sometimes I think in life we wish that, God, if you would just take this problem away, this trial this financial difficulty, this temptation that I've been struggling with, this addiction that I've been struggling with. Lord, if you could just take it away. And sometimes there's miracle stories where God does exactly that. But then there's stories like this where God does something kind of to the opposite. Moses, he goes to God, if you keep reading the story in Numbers chapter 21, he actually prays, he seeks the Lord, but the Lord does not answer the people's prayer or desire in the way that they want it. Instead of just taking the serpents away, Moses is instructed by the Lord to put a brazen serpent on a pole. And anyone who would look to this brazen serpent would live. It was that simple. Look and live. Look and live. Now the gospel application of this story I don't think was fully realized until a thousand years later or so when Christ, talking to Nicodemus that night, points him back to the story and how it represented his mission that Christ would soon be lifted up on a cross and all who would simply look and live might be saved. But it's interesting that God chose to use the serpent, the very thing that was killing them. But the Bible says that Jesus, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Jesus literally became sin for us that you and I might be saved. When we look throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, we find example after example that points us to Christ as our Savior, as the one to whom we are to look. And as we look, we will find life and life everlasting. As we continue our journey tonight, I'd like to take us to a text a text that is very well known even by people that may not even go to church. You know, there's kind of texts like that. You know, there's a famous athlete, uh, Stephen Curry. 
Um, he writes on his shoes before every game, I can do all things, Philippians 4.13, right? Because there's certain Bible texts, John 3.16, that, that people know. Well, this is one of them. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. And this is going to be the central point of our study as we actually go forward tonight. Because everything is going to revolve around this text. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. We know it well. For I know the plans is what most of us are used to hearing. But this is the King James. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. If I read from the New King James, or the ESV, actually, English Standard Version, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. Now the context of this verse is going to become exceedingly important tonight as we continue our journey. Now we hear this verse used at graduations and to comfort people and, you know, God has a plan for you. But he really does. And we're going to see that as we dig deeper into the word of God tonight. God has a plan for his children. And this is why we're going to look at the book of Daniel tonight. Because Daniel shows us that at the end of time, God is going to bring an end to the corrupt empires of this world and establish his kingdom forever and ever. And one of those visions we find in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. And we're going to come to verse 14. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. We read something very interesting. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now I have to ask a question, when Daniel heard this, and we keep reading through the chapter, unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed, how did Daniel respond? Well, if you zoom down to the very end of the chapter, we're going to find out that Daniel did not take this news very well at all. If you go from Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, down to verse 27, we read, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one could understand it. Now we've got to give some context to the situation. We've already looked at the prophet Jeremiah tonight because the prophet Jeremiah is very central to the children of Israel at the time of Daniel's captivity. The prophet Jeremiah was used by God to prophesy that Israel's captivity in Babylon would last only 70 years. So now Daniel gets this news. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, if you do the math, it's not too hard to figure out that 2,300 days is only 6.3 years if we're talking about literal days. So if something about this news that Daniel was receiving would only extend the timeline of their captivity 6.3 years, that's really not too bad. Not something to be terribly distressed over. But now we have to take this into context of the Jewish mindset. How often was the sanctuary cleansed? Once a year. Travis said it, once a year. 
if we study into the Levitical laws, we look at the ceremonial laws, you have the sanctuary, which we're going to talk about in a later talk. The sanctuary was set up for the children of Israel at Mount Sinai after God gives them the commandments. You have the altar of sacrifice, the laver, the candlesticks, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and then the most holy place. And in the most holy place, the high priest was the only one who could enter into the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement. That was the only time the sanctuary was cleansed from sin. So if you're taking this from a Jewish understanding, when Daniel reads done to 2,300 days, when he hears this in vision, he's recognizing that we're not talking about just 6.3 years. We're talking about 2,000 300 years. And that changes the game. We're no longer talking about 70 years. He's wondering, why are we now talking about 2,300 years? Now, we've seen this principle in other parts of the Bible where in certain prophetic timeline, God uses a day for your principle. We're going to see that tonight as we keep going. But Daniel is sick and faint for days, for how long, we don't know. But we do know that according to Jeremiah 25, verse 11 and 12, that the captivity to the king of Babylon was only supposed to last 70 years. So now Daniel's got a problem. He's like, Lord, wait a second. I thought you said, I thought you promised that we would only be here 70 years. Now, this understanding is further verified when we get to Daniel chapter 9, if you open there with me in your Bibles. Now, it is also provided in the packet, but Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 through 11, says this, In the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years wherefore the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So Daniel acknowledges here. From Daniel chapter 8 to Daniel chapter 9, he acknowledges that his understanding was according to the prophet Jeremiah. It was only going to take 70 years of captivity. And he begins to pray. Daniel's confused. He's sick, faint for many days. And verse 3 tells us that I set my face unto the Lord to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God. Now this isn't just any typical kind of prayer. You didn't just get down every day with sackcloth and ashes to pray. Now this was an intense prayer where Daniel is actively seeking to know the will of God here. Actively seeking for understanding. And we read this prayer, it's quite a powerful prayer. I prayed unto the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and we have committed iniquity and we have done wickedly and we have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, 
but unto us confusion of face at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Daniel keeps praying. Now what's interesting about Daniel's prayer is Daniel is confessing as though he is one of his own people. He's identifying himself with the children of Israel. And when we read the story of Daniel, Daniel is one of those rare characters in the Bible where no sin is mentioned. Daniel is one of those blameless characters. He's like a Job. He's like a Joseph. One of the few characters in the Bible where we find no mention of sin. He's not like Abraham who lied and, you know, let his wife go almost sleep with another man. He's not like Jacob who deceived to steal his brother's birthright. No, Daniel is a blameless man as far as we know according to the Bible record. There's no mention of sin. And yet here he chooses to identify himself with the people. He recognizes that they have sinned, that the whole reason they're in captivity is because they've turned their back on God. Verse 10, Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey the, thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured out upon us. And the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. Now this brings me to the question very simply, why did Daniel respond this way? Why did Daniel respond this way? Well, the answer is actually found back in Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29 to verse 11 is what we know well, and we often quote it without any context. But if you read in verse 10 of Jeremiah chapter 29, we read the following. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you. For I know the plans that I have for you. This is the entire context. God is speaking to his children in their darkest hour as they have been stripped away from their home country. As they have been stripped away and taken captive, God is saying, I have not forgotten you. I still have a plan for you. I have a future. I have something to give you hope. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. I have not abandoned you. And then we read verse 12, and this is where we begin to understand, why did Daniel pray as he did? We know that Daniel knew what the prophet Jeremiah had said. He references that at the very beginning of Daniel chapter 9. He says, I heard the word of the prophet Jeremiah that 70 years. Verse 12, Then you shall call upon me, and you shall go and what? Pray. Pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. I will hear you. I will listen to you. And you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You know, many Christians today, and whether we're actively walking with the Lord or not, Jeremiah chapter 29, 11 is a promise that we love to claim whether or not we want to seek the face of the God who made the promise. 
But Daniel did not make that mistake. Daniel did not try and claim the promise of Jeremiah chapter 29 with 11 without seeking the face of his God. Daniel, in the moment of lacking understanding, in the moment where he didn't know why there was something to do with these 2300 days, which we'll come back to at a later message. Daniel reminded the Lord of his promise. He told God, wait a second, I I know that it's only supposed to be 70 years, and I'm going to seek your face until I gain understanding. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found of you. We talked about this in the first meeting, right? Adam and Eve, what do they do when they sin? They begin to hide. God says here that if you'll seek me with all your heart, I will be found of you. It's humans who started the first game of hide and seek. God's not been hiding from us. God is longing to be found if we would simply seek after him with all our heart. Now to further add weight to the evidence that Daniel knew of these words, look at Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 1. The Bible says, Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem under the residue of the elders, which were carried away captives to the priests, to the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jeremiah chapter 29 was a letter handwritten specifically for God's children in captivity. It was written as a reminder that in your darkest hour, God has a plan for you. When life is rough, when you don't know what to expect, when you're struggling to make ends meet, maybe pay that mortgage, have enough money to pay rent, struggling with relationships, whatever it may be, battling an addiction, in your darkest hour, God still has a plan for you if you'll seek Him with all your heart. There's a story told of the lost battalion. The commander of the 308, a division of the 77th Infantry, was named Charles Whittlesey. And uh, before he was drafted and called up to serve, he was actually a very intelligent lawyer. Now, the 77th Infantry was comprised of people from the city of New York. And if you know anything about New York, New York is very ethnically diverse. It always has been because for the longest time, that's where most of our immigration went through. And so the men of the the 77th Infantry spoke a total of 42 different languages. And this particular group of men were sent to the country of France and they were chosen to clear the forest of Argonne. Now, the 28th Infantry from the American Army was supposed to go on their left and the French were supposed to go on their right as they made an advance upon the German army. This was the plan. And as they were getting ready for this battle, Charles Whittlesey, the commander of the 77th, specifically the 308, he was given a a command that they were to advance, no matter what the cost. 
Now that's not a command that anyone would want to receive. The command to advance, no matter what the cost, is a command to go forward, no matter how many lives are lost. The problem was, as the 308, the division of the 77th Infantry, advanced and made their way into the Argonne Forest, the French and the Americans, the 28th, did not. And as the men are advancing in, they started with 500. The French and the Americans on their left and on their right did not advance. And Charles Whittlesey and his men, they find themselves entrenched in a battle where they're now surrounded by the Germans. Their food and water is cut off. Men begin to starve. They started with 500, but now they're down to 300. And you'd think that they just throw in the towel. Well, they kept fighting. They kept enduring. Charles Whittlesey kept finding ways to keep his men in good courage. They eventually got to a point where they tried to send up some of their carrier pigeons. The first carrier pigeon that they send up, as it's flying away, it's immediately blown up by a bomb that comes over. They're down to one pigeon. They attach this note, pleading for help, pleading for the rest of the American army to actually come through for the 28th Division to follow up with their word, to come in and flank from the left. As they send this last pigeon, it flies up and sits in the tree, and it's like, (laughs) you know, I saw what happened to the last guy. And it just sits there. And finally the, the pigeon handler, he's like climbing up the tree, trying to shake the tree. And, and finally the pigeon decides to fly off. And right as it's flying off, another bomb strikes. And the pigeon falls to the ground. And they're thinking, it's dead. But it actually got up and, and flew away. As they were advancing through the woods, they would post these little markers that were supposed to help them see. But the forest was so thick that... that the supply planes that would fly over, dropping off food and water. They couldn't see it. So often the food and water would land in enemy territory. And on one of these specific days that happened, the the supply for food and water falls in enemy territory. And four men, they gave up the courage to go and retrieve that food and water no matter what the cost. Out of those four men, one of them survives, but is taken captive by the Germans. Now the Germans had become so comfortable in their position that they were kind of living it up back there. And they began to talk to this man. They didn't actually torture him. They were actually quite amazed with their bravery. These men had fought with great valor and courage. And they were just hoping that the man would take back a message encouraging the Americans to surrender and retreat. So they send this man back with a white flag and he walks across waving the white flag and he gets back to the commander, Charles Whittlesey. And he tells them that the Germans are requesting that they surrender. Mind you, this whole battle lasts for about 28 days. It's a long time. I mean, you know, that's like a month, but in war, that's a long time.
And Charles Whittlesey, when he gets the request to surrender, he doesn't even respond. He just keeps fighting with his men. Doesn't even acknowledge their request. When help finally came, there were 44 of his men left. You know, I'm of German stock, so don't misunderstand this. Somebody did misunderstand this when I shared this before. But the devil is kind of like the Germans. The devil comes to you in your darkest, most discouraging hour and tells you just give up, surrender, throw in the towel, call it quits. But sometimes we've got to be like Charles Whittlesey and have the courage to keep fighting and not even give an answer, but to just keep pressing forward. You know, the most that Jesus told the devil was, get thee behind me. And the Bible is trying to tell us something very clear tonight, that in our darkest hour, when things seem the most hopeless, that God still has a plan for us. That he is a merciful and long-suffering and forgiving God. In fact, this is illustrated well in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 21 and 22. Peter is asking a question, uh, you know, seemingly logical question. Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say it to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. 490 times. Obviously, I think there's a couple of applications here. One, I think Jesus was trying to illustrate the fact that we shouldn't be keeping track of how many times we've forgiven someone. But we're going to find, too, that Jesus was referencing, I believe, the very literal fact that God had been giving Israel 490 years to be forgiven and to turn from their sinful ways. Coming back to Daniel chapter 9, we have to remember the context of Daniel chapter 9 directly follows Daniel chapter 8. And at the end of Daniel chapter 8, Daniel is in a very discouraged position. He's sick and he's wondering, what is God up to? What is this whole 2,300 years, 2,300 days, what does it mean? Is God actually going to keep us in captivity for that long? Is there hope for my people? So Daniel sets his face to seek the Lord as we read in Daniel chapter 9. And he prays and he prays. And we come down to verse 23 of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 23 the Bible says, at the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. So here, the angel is coming. Why was he praying? Because of the vision in Daniel chapter 8. And now God is saying, I'm coming to bring you understanding. I'm sending this angel to bring you understanding of that vision. And to do so, I'm going to give you another vision right here. 
Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in an everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy. Seventy weeks are determined. Seventy weeks are cut off for thy people. Now, we have to again step back in and think for a moment. Okay? Seventy weeks. How long is that? It's not even a year and a half if we're thinking in literal time. Okay? So, seventy weeks, year and a half, less than a year and a half. We've got to be talking about something more significant here than just a short period of time. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now come with me to Numbers chapter 14. We're going to look at this day for a year principle when we're talking about Bible prophecy. We already looked at the evidence that Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14 is not talking about 2300 days literally, as in 6.3 years. That wouldn't really make sense for Daniel to be so upset about. But now we're coming to another time prophecy. 70 weeks is 490 days. 490 days. Now, Numbers 14, verse 34, and verse 33, we'll start there. This is after the children of Israel have failed to enter into the promised land. They're going to be forced to wander 40 years. This is what God says to them. And your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years and bear your whoredoms until their carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. After the number of the days in which you searched out the land, even 40 days, each day for a year. So there's this day for your principle where God says for each day, you're going to wander a year in the wilderness. 2,300 days is 2,300 years. Daniel clearly understood this. This is why he was so upset. Now God is bringing him to 490 years of time that has been determined for the children of Israel. 70 weeks, 490 years are cut off for your people to finish transgression, to make an end of sins. There's this probationary time that God is giving the children of Israel to make reconciliation for iniquity. Who did that? Christ. His sacrifice upon the cross is what makes reconciliation for sin and iniquity. To bring everlasting righteousness, Jesus is the one who accomplishes this. Jesus is the one who has brought in everlasting righteousness. All who believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. To seal up the vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy, this is to confirm that this vision is true, to confirm the prophecy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, three score, and two weeks. Okay. So now we've broken this time prophecy into three sections. There's seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then we're going to find that there's one last week. 62 and seven weeks adds up to 69 weeks. Now, there's a specific command given. 
Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the command. So the start of this 490 year timeline for the children of Israel begins when the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is finally given. Now why is that significant to God's people? They're in captivity right now. Israel has been laid waste. The temple destroyed. The walls of the city torn down. And God is saying, you're going to have an opportunity to go back to your homeland. It's going to be rebuilt. It's going to be restored. And when this command happens, 490 years, 70 weeks have been cut off for your people to make an end of sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness. And all of these things. Well, there's actually three commands that were given that pertain to the city of Israel, the city of Jerusalem. The first was given in 536 BC, but the command was not to rebuild Jerusalem, just the house of God, just the temple. Well, that plan to rebuild the temple kind of gets thwarted. There's another command given in 519 BC to continue the progress. But it is not until the third command found in Ezra chapter 7, verse 13 through 26. Ezra chapter 7, which is given in 457 BC by Artaxerxes. It is not until that command is given that the true process of restoring all of Jerusalem is started. And from that command, it takes seven weeks or 49 years to rebuild Jerusalem. And then there's another 62, and it brings us to the final week. In verse 26, and after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. So now we recognize that Daniel is receiving a vision that is talking about the Messiah, Jesus, the one whom the children of Israel were hoping for, longing for. We understand that the children of Israel, they wanted a Messiah to come and overthrow the Romans, to destroy their power and make their nation great again. So 62 weeks combined, we come down to the time of the Messiah. In the last week, after three score and two weeks, shall the Messiah be cut off, but not for himself and the people of the prince that shall come to destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. Verse 27, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. We've got a lot going on here in these last two verses. First of all, the Messiah will be cut off sometime after the 62 weeks. Okay? Then, the second half of verse 26 is actually dealing with everything that happens when Israel is finally destroyed forever. In AD 70, the people of the prince shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary, and then the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war of desolations are determined. Okay, so Israel is eventually destroyed. Everything is encapsulated in this one prophecy about the children of Israel 490 years. And God is saying, I've cut off this time of probation for your people.
Christ will confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. For the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. Four fifty seven BC is when this whole prophecy begins. It gives us the start date to the twenty three hundred years. But it also shows us that Christ came right on time. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. He would be cut off for the people, for you and I, for all our sins. Christ is the one who is anointed. In fact, he's anointed specifically at his baptism. We can trace this down to 27 AD, which brings us exactly to that last week. And in the middle of that week, in 31 AD, we understand that Christ actually dies on the cross for us. History is pretty clear on this fact. In fact, the Jews recognize from 31 AD on, the sanctuary services no longer operate the same way. There's some interesting history there where they used to bring the goats and they would tie a tassel around it and it would go from red to right showing that God had actually accepted them. There's some interesting history and they write that after 31 AD, this stops. Now, what does it say in verse 27? It says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. Meaning that the sacrificial system, all of which pointed to Christ, the Lamb of God, without blemish, who would be slain for their sins, it's no longer valid. Christ had fulfilled the sacrificial system. And then, at the end of the 490 years, in AD 34, the Jews ultimately reject the gospel in stoning Stephen. And we read in Acts chapter 8, right after the stoning of Stephen, that the gospel begins to spread like wildfire to the Gentiles, all of which would be us. We are the Gentiles, so to speak. We're not Jews, even if we have a little bit of Jewishness in us. I don't know if we were to take our DNA, but... To the Jews, we would be considered Gentiles. But we see that Jesus comes right on time. He fulfills the 490 years. The Jews reject the gospel, and the gospel is given to all the world. And the message that Daniel receives is one of hope and encouragement that God had not given up on his people that God was going to give them 490 years, that, that they would get to go home. And God is saying to you and I tonight that in our darkest hour, He has not given up on us. In fact, He has a message to go into all the world that, that there is a final judgment hour, but there is an everlasting gospel. And our Savior is Jesus Christ. As we come back Friday, 
we're going to be looking at Earth's final judgment hour. The world already went through a judgment hour thousands of years before in the days of Noah. But Earth has one more judgment hour that the Bible talks about. And if you want to do some reading in advance, start reading Revelation chapter 14. It tells us, for the hour of his judgment is come. In Daniel's darkest hour, God brought him hope and encouragement, and Daniel found God to be faithful and true to his promises. And we can find God to be faithful and true to his promises today. I want us to stand as we close. And we're going to sing a closing song. Number 337. Redeemed. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we just thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. Every time your people have been in a dark and challenging place, you've always shown up. Lord, you've shown up in many a different way, but Lord, um, as we've seen tonight, you are a merciful and forgiving God. You are long-suffering And you are faithful to your word and to your promises. So Lord, we want to be like Daniel, that in moments where we don't understand, in moments where we're confused, in moments where we don't know what to expect or what's going to happen next, we want to be like Daniel and seek you with all our heart. We want to pray. It's your desire to trust in the promise-keeping God. As all heads are bowed, just raise your hands. Lord, in our darkest hour, your word promises us that you still have a plan for us. And so we're turning to you with all our heart, and we're seeking your face. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. There's fellowship food, uh, some light refreshments over at the Fellowship Hall. Please join us, and have a good evening. (laughs) 